The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Welcome to Slot Plus Edition. It's Wednesday, January 2nd, 2019. Happy 2019. And on today's show, we're going to do something a little bit different. It's just past the holidays. We're all traveling to different places. And Steve and Julie and I couldn't get back into the studio to tape a regular show. So we thought we would pull back the Slate Plus velvet rope this week and share with listeners a selection of some of our favorite Slate Plus segments from the year. Slate Plus is a place where Steve and Julie and I get a little bit looser, I would even say sometimes sillier. We have an extended conversation either about a topic from earlier in the show, maybe we weren't quite finished making one of our points, sometimes we bring up another topic entirely, sometimes we call it at the last minute and say, you know what, as we're walking into the studio, everyone's talking about this, let's do it. Sometimes we take listener questions from you for the Slate Plus segment, and sometimes we just go with our gut or the trends of the day. From that group of topics, one of the most popular subjects we end up talking about in Slate Plus is books, something we don't actually often cover in the main part of the show. But we have four of our favorite book-themed Slate Plus segments from this year, and our producer has gathered them together into a little beginning-of-year bouquet for you all until we all get back in the studio together next week. If you like what you hear and you want to get segments like this every week, plus ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite shows and never have to hear an ad again. So if you'd like to support Slate and the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join. Our first Slate Plus segment for today's show comes from this past July, the Grasping at Straws edition of the show, in which Steve, Julia, and I took a listener question about Steve's often-discussed policy that he never sees a movie without having read the book first. This caused some controversy in studio when he mentioned his policy, and so we decided to talk about it in Slate Plus, and here we go. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. If you are listening to this, that means you're a member of Slate Plus. Thank you so much for supporting Slate's journalism and our show. Today, we are going to field a smart question, I believe, posed to us by listener Scott Smith. Allow me to read a little bit from his missive, and then we will engage. Hi, Festies. I just heard Steve claim some kind of hard rule about always reading capital The Book before watching capital The Movie. I know he's not alone in this, but this is a pretty problematic policy if you think about it just a minute longer. Really, I just want to hear Dana and Julia weigh in on this and Steve defend himself or allow nuance to creep in. But here are the first two points I see against it just to get you started. One, this rule elevates capital original works and single capital authors over adaptations and collaborations like movie crews. Whereas we can all enjoy the birds or the counting crows singing You Ain't Going Nowhere without ever sitting through Dylan doing it. We're not cheating ourselves or Dylan to enjoy the birds first. Moreover, the essential experience that Graham Parsons or Ridley Scott want to convey to the audience may be different from the essential experience that Bob Dylan or Philip K. Dick want to convey. Two, reading and bonding with a novel is likely to diminish the enjoyment of the movie, as every plot difference or element of the book that is cut from the movie will rankle. But if you enjoy the movie first and then treat yourself to the filled-out, slower, often more intellectual rendering of the original novel, you get the best of both. Scott's email continues for a little bit, but I thought it was an interesting set of questions that we should engage. So first, Steve, what do you say to Mr. Scott Smith? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, it, 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 you know, sooner sooner admit of an exception to any rule rather than say or do anything barbarous is a 
bad summary of what George Orwell said in his essay, Politics in the English Language, but sort of something like that, which is that obviously you break any rule when it's at the point of forcing you to do something absurd. In this instance, you wouldn't first read the novel, The Graduate, which everyone is, as far as I can tell, rightfully forgotten, rather than go see the classic film. And on and on and on and on. There are millions of examples. In the, in the specific instance that I was referring to, you know, there's a book that that is extant and cared about to the present day. Uh, it has some status as a genre, if not literary classic. Uh, it uh, wait, remind demands, I, It was oh, in, I'm a, sorry, in, a in a lonely place. place, right? By Dorothy Hughes, which is this pulp novel that was turned into a classic uh, film starring. Humphrey Bogart, I've wanted to see the Bogart movie forever, but not without first reading the book. And to me, that is just an ironclad, unbreakable rule that if the book really has a a lasting integrity as a classic or kind of classic, it just makes no sense to go see the movie first and then have fixed in your head the image of Humphrey Bogart or, you know, which were completely absent in the creation of the uh, creation of the literary work. And you have no idea how, how your imagination will form around the words on the page, which is, of course, an indispensable part of reading any novel is how it provokes associations in your own mind, um, you know, from but somewhat independent of what the author has written and, and forever to think of um you know, uh, of uh, uh, Heathcliff, Heathcliff as uh, as Laurence Olivier, and have it fixed in that image before reading the you know the classic novel. As wonderful, as autonomous a work of art as the film is, and as as Olivier's performance is, uh, seems crazy to me. You're not going to detract from the movie at all because film is such a powerful and sensuously powerful medium. It's gonna it's gonna you know achieve its imaginative effect on you even if you've read the book and the opposite isn't true always read the book first always inflexibly with the caveat that i offered at the top of the 400 words (laughs) all right steve coming in from the right in favor of inflexibility dana (laughs) steven (laughs) i love you like a brother but that is completely insane that is just unworkable i mean i i actually i understand what you're saying about film being in a way a more Power, powerful is the wrong word, but a more brain colonizing medium, right? I mean, because it, it comes complete with images. It's sort of like after you eat chocolate, you can't taste anything else, right? It has that quality of kind of taking over. Um, and so there are sometimes there are certain books that I don't particularly want to see the film adaptation of. And I'm thinking, for example, of something that you're in the midst of reading right now, the Elena Ferrante series is going to be made into a a miniseries, I think, for TV. And uh, I'm sure that we'll watch it and we'll talk about it for the show, but I'm not particularly interested because my brain is already perfectly populated with those characters and I don't need anyone to embody them. But nonetheless, this notion of there being a, a proper order and that literature takes the first place and that film takes the second place. I mean, just as a film critic and cinephile, I have to stand up for the possibility of of film standing for itself, even if it is an adaptation of a great work. I mean, there's another big question, which is sort of a a cliche in film criticism, but is really hard, I think, to think of exceptions to this rule, which is that a great novel never makes a great movie and that all the best literary adaptation movies come from lesser novels. Um, And, you know, obviously you can pop up with some exceptions to that, but really to a huge extent, like, for example, the whole world of, of noir film, right? A lot of it came out of 
Some of it came out of Raymond Chandler or great pulp novels. Some of it came out of not great pulp novels or just the idea of what a pulp novel would be that might not have existed in, in book form before. I just think that the relationship between literature and film is far more porous and fungible and sort mm -hmm. of bleeding back and forth than to just sort of say, like, here is this monument, the book. First you experience the book and then you then you're sort of pure enough to experience the movie. That just isn't how people experience culture. And I don't think it should be. I think to sort of wander through the cultural landscape, experiencing things in the order that you do or that you can, and then exploring them further to the ex extent that you want to seems like the only free way to roam the cultural landscape. I mean, take me, for example, I've never read the novel In a Lonely Place. You made me really want to read it with your endorsement the other week. But that movie, independent of even knowing that it was based on a novel, is like a core element of my, you know, spiritual makeup. Like I have loved that movie for 25 years or something. And I, while I'm excited that there's a great book that it's based on that I can read, I don't think that it's going to necessarily deepen or enrich my experience of the movie. The movie has already given me what it has to give me, like in such abundance. Mm. Does, does that make any sense? I mean, your your rhetorical attack has left me porous, fungible, and bleeding, Dana, but I think <laughs> I may be able to pick myself up off the canvas a little bit here. I mean, I think there's, first of all, there's a carve out, like in a lonely place, is exactly in the gray area here because it's a book that probably is remembered principally for having been the source material for a classic Bogart film and a great film, right? And and it's, it's been kept and Gloria alive Graham. By that I just have to admit, I, I have to add, we keep talking about Bogart, but Gloria Graham, who plays the female lead in that film, is absolutely just as stunning. And it's an amazing, amazing film about a relationship between two equally messed up and loving people. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. But um, so uh, that's that. That one's not so clear. But I mean, Hollywood has this way of of you know, hoovering up the classics and using them to their you know you know evanescent and highly commercial purposes, and kind of not really honoring what they were in their you know um, in their original guise. And I think there's something to be said for on a case by case basis determining whether something you know has been you know whether or not something has has integrity as a work of literary art aside from whatever you know movie that it's been turned into you know should you read don't you think a a, a young girl young boy should read Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre before they see a film version of them especially some crap like knockoffy version of Jane Eyre just a, 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 you know a, a story it's like a story that's just just next to impossible to capture or do justice to on film. I mean, these things were books for a reason. Like people bled, as you know, Dana, like people bleed their lives into books in order to try to make these characters real. Um, well, that kind of goes to, go. sorry, go ahead. And then I have, I have something to say when you're done. I, I just, I, there, are, there, are, there are books that I would like to have experienced without. I mean, Silence of the Lambs would be a great example. Silence of the Lambs is one of the great genre books ever written. I mean, it's, it, it, it is is virtually a flawless masterpiece in pulp fiction writing. And, um, and I think the movie is one of the 20 best movies Hollywood's made in the last 30 years. Um, I mean, I think they're both masterpieces, but... And I did it in reverse order in that instance. I mean, you know, and in that instance, like I kind of reading the book, I would have loved to have read the book without Anthony Hopkins as, you know, Lecter, without uh, Jodie Foster as Cl Clarice Starling kind of fixed in my head ahead of time. So I wasn't replaying the movie when I read the book. 
Can I propose, can I be the baby splitter in this conversation and, and, propose, and propose a line of analysis here? So I find Scott Smith's first argument that it's a little bit fishy to privilege chronology uh, or to privilege the single author versus the collective work, you know, even the thing you just said about people pouring labor into making a great book. Lots of people also pour labor into making a truly great movie. Um, and... Uh, you know, there's all, there's also sort of an implied suggestion that the best possible book is a superior art experience to the best possible movie a little bit, which I think is maybe part of what rankles or feels fishy about Steve's position. On the other hand, I think Steve is totally right uh, about one thing, and I think this is where our dear listeners' argument is less successful. Point two, um, that, you know books are always richer and deeper than film just by nature of the difference between the form, even the best possible film. And so if you see the film after the book, you're liable to be disappointed. But if you see the film first, uh, the book will open further riches and untold worlds onto you. On that point, I think Steve is right. And you can point out, it, it actually reminds me of that passage of Calvino that I love that I read when we were on stage in Australia from Invisible Cities about how once you see a city, the invisible image of the city that you had in your mind falls out of your head and you can't conjure it anymore. Like you've never been to Chattanooga. There's some set of images in your mind that come up when you hear the word Chattanooga. Once you actually contemplate Chattanooga and look at it in the face, that ephemeral Chattanooga of the mind disappears. Um, and I think the same does apply to reading versus watching the the delicate souffle of image and conception in your mind when you undergo a reading experience just does get stomped by uh, seeing real human bodies embody those characters. So my position would be, if you believe the book likely to be a reading experience that you want to have unsullied by other people's visual conceptions, try to read the book first. But otherwise, don't assume you always have to read the book first and make the judgment about how much you are liable to enjoy a particular book. For example, I had not thought that we will probably discuss the adaptation of Elena Ferrante that's coming. Get ready for four hours of Italian language television. Um, but that's going to hasten me to read books three and four, which I've sort of been saving because I find the reading experiences so pleasurably intense, but also kind of bitter and dour. Um, so I will try to get those read before that comes out because I would like to inhabit that world un, un, with my souffle unspoiled by whatever images are conjured. I mean, I think that yeah. goes back to what I was... Because you should read the book first. <laughs> <laughs> I think what Julia just said goes back to what I was saying about a great literature being very difficult to film and maybe unfilmable, right? There's never been a great film of Moby Dick and there's never arguably been a great film of Wuthering Heights or you know maybe any of the, the Bronte novels. I think in all of those cases, it wouldn't necessarily be read the book first, but just don't die without having read the book, whereas it's perfectly fine to kick the bucket without having seen the movie. And so, yeah, I guess if somebody came to me, some young supplicant film student came and sat at my knee and said, should I read the book first? I would be more likely to say yes if it was a great book and a great work of art. But then when I think about myself as a critic and I, when I'm re-reviewing adaptations, can I always read the book the movie's based on? No, usually not. But what are the occasions when I do? It's not when it's a great novel necessarily. In fact, it's not usually that. It's usually when it's 
a culturally significant novel. Like I read Twilight, the first of the Twilight books before seeing the first of the movies. I can only make it through that first book. I can only take so much for my my art. But um, <laughs> if it's something like, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey or one of those books that was a huge phenomenon where you know that everybody going into the movie, good or bad, everybody is going to have read that book, maybe with their book club, and it's going to have some opinion about it, then it seems important to have have that behind you. But then I think, for example, of the Harry Potter movies, several of which I saw and reviewed, whichever ones came out when I was a movie critic, I saw them and I reviewed them and I had not read the Harry Potter books. And I now realize that that was bad critical practice. You know, I waited until I had a kid and I'm glad I did because it was an utter joy reading the Harry Potter books with her. But that's a case where those are really adaptations. They're all about fan service and about making people who already love the books happy with the representation on screen. I think the films in general do an excellent job at that. But I wasn't really qualified to assess them, I don't think, in that case without knowing about the body of literature that was behind them. Um, all right. I think we've we've in, uh, grappled with this topic in a way that I hope has made uh Scott Smith satisfied and perhaps some other listeners as well. And I would just finally say on the subject of Twilight that puts in mind one thought I had about Leave No Trace, which is imagine if Deborah Granick had made Twilight with Thomas and McKenzie as Bella, <laughs> like the actual pale, frizzy haired, awkward girl of the Northwest, as opposed to the like pouting rock star of Kristen Stewart. I actually think Kristen Stewart's kind of fun in those movies, but like Oh my God, Kristen Stewart makes those movies. I know, I know, but I just this the 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 actual the delightful actual grace slash gawkiness of the teenager in Leave No Trace as compared to like quote unquote gawky um, <laughs> was so beautiful and all right enough just just go watch leave no trace thank you so much for being a member of slate plus and listening to this bonus segment of our show we'll be with you next week our next slate plus segment from 2018 comes from the neo maxi zoom dweeby edition last april Julia and I are joined by Willa Paskin, Slate's wonderful TV critic, to talk about why it is that some people feel when you crack open a book, you're entering a pact that can only be broken by finishing that book. Basically, do you power through a book you don't like or do you just give it up and move on? Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. If you are hearing this, that means you're a member of Slate Plus. Thank you so much for supporting Slate and the journalism that we do. Uh, today, we're going to answer a listener question. Our listener is Sammy Martin, who asks, do you support not finishing a book you find boring or distasteful, yet everyone around you says you simply must read? So I would posit that there are two separate questions here. One is, how do you feel about whether you must finish books that you start? Two is, how do you feel about whether you must finish books that you start that are strongly recommended by a coterie of your friends? So let's start with the baseline question. Willa, are you a book finisher or a book abandoner? This has been like a real change for me. I was not like a hardline not book abandoner for many, many years of my life. Like the only book I hadn't finished for like well into my 20s was like Little Women. I was like really proud of that. And then <laughs> that that I mean I didn't I didn't like Little Women. <laughs> That's so weird. I know it's kind of you weird. seem like such a Little Woman liking kind of gal. I should go back and check it out. I don't know what it was, but uh, then like what? Who has time for that? That's crazy. I I'm a critic for a living. I can tell if something's good or not. And I just feel like <laughs> I think there was a thing about books where I I ha like I felt like they were sort of I do sort of feel like books are special. It's like I get to read them just for me. I like love them the most, and so and I sort of 
they take so much work. Something about them seemed like a little slightly elevated than all this other stuff. I would just definitely stop in the middle. And so I was like, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and read all the way through. But that is no. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't I mean, make any sense. I, I as love a waste the respect time. for books in that in that sentiment, but it also turns books into these strange authorities where just because they're bundles of printed paper, you must obey their. their... I also like kept expecting like maybe they'll get better, and every so often a book like does, but it's just not worth it. I, so I don't. So I hard no, don't do that. And I and I honestly don't finish books now all the time that I even wish I did finish, and like they have to get back to the library or like life intervened. I can really relate to your sense that like starting to read a book is a sacred pact with that book that you must complete or else like a thousand unicorns will die (laughs) in the forest or something. But it's true, especially once you begin, if you do begin a career as a culture maker and you think about the like relative effort of quality control that goes into the different mediums, like there are a lot more totally bad and unvetted books than there are totally bad and unvetted TV shows and movies, actually. I, I mean, I would say that some of this is also like self-selection about what you're going to read. Yeah, no, but just like, I mean, there's plenty of bad things of every medium stipulated. But like, it's just very likely in the book publishing process that somebody buys a book and then you, I mean, I have countless journalist friends who like file a book and the editor's like, great, it's getting a copy <laughs> edit. And like nobody edits it and there's no process. And they're like, we liked your idea and we like your name and we got some blurbs and here's a book. <laughs> and as someone who believes in, like editing and the idea that collaboration and response and feedback anticipation makes a thing better. Like book publishing, from what I gather, is the medium currently that has the least of that and believes most in like you hire a talented person and whatever they make, that's what you get. And I I just like don't believe in that as a process, basically. And so I feel like you can tell sometimes, and especially with nonfiction books, you'll be in the middle of it and you'll be like, what is this? Yeah, I don't even read nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's like my, I basically, I have two small children, so, um, and I, and I have to watch TV for my job. So like I have very little time for books and I've gotten like very serious about it. Like I want it to be good. Yeah, no, that makes sense. When you say you have two small children, I mean, the fact that you, you read it all is incredibly impressive. Like you've got to read what, what floats your boat right So now. I really like, and there's, so there's all these novels that I'm like, oh, some earlier version of me would have been totally happy to read this. Like I get what it is, but it would have been fun. And I'm just like, nope, don't. It has to like, I, I need it to be like a little elevated. So and what I, level non-fi- of goodness? What you're, you're looking for like literary excellence? Yes. I want like modern literary excellence. So what are, what are like the last two books you read <laughs> that met the standard oh my and God, got who finished? Even re- who even remembers? I I did. I have also been on. I'm I'm writing a review of a bunch of mom book, like books, literary mommy books, and those sometimes really do it for me. Like I really loved the Argonauts. Like that was like a kind of quintessential. That I was really into the Ferrante books, like especially the first one. That sort of scratched that itch for me. Um, what have I been reading? I mean, I I I'm constantly getting books from. Oh, I did just read a book I really liked, but it was sort of felt like not quite enough. Asymmetry. I just read that Lisa Halliday book. Asymmetry. Oh, everybody's swooning and rhapsodizing about that. Yes, and it was. Um, it's very. It goes down super smooth, and it's totally smart. It's very well done. I didn't. It's also like not that long. <laughs> yeah, I bought that and did not read it on vacation because I was reading about the 348th the dinner party that Tina Brown was at <laughs> in 1989. But I'm going to get to it. Um, Dana, are you a book finisher or a book abandoner? Abandoner, definitely. I don't think I ever had. I mean, generally, I try to pick books that I really want to read, so I probably finish more books than I that I start. Then I don't finish. But yeah, I, I don't think I've ever had guilt about abandoning because books ask so much of your time, right? I mean, more so than these other mediums. It's one thing to consume a few episodes of a TV show and decide if you like it. But 
really to fully engage with a book that's two to 300 pages long takes, I don't know, I mean, it's at very least, even if you have days to devote to it, it takes several days, right? You know, it's funny, as you said, it is something about how personal it is. It's like you're rejecting a person. Like, that's sort of why I wanted to finish it. It's like a TV show. I'm like, 10,000 people made that. I don't know. Like, you, your feelings aren't hurt. You made a bajillion dollars. But it's like, there was some part where I was you're like... You're just one human who made about 40 bucks. <laughs> yeah, and the least I can do is... It's like, read your book. Yeah. I also will say that the less nice version of this, I have a very, like... I have occasionally in my life like totally spiraled out about how few books you'll all read in your life. Like yes. if you were reading like 50 books a year, which is quite a bit, like as a book a week, like in 10 years you've read 500 books. It's just really, you've read like, you've maybe read 1,500 books in your life, maybe 2,000. It's really kind of horrifying. And um, I get horrified about it. And part of that is also that I have, like have since, since after graduating from college, I have like a list of all the books that I've read, like just in a notebook. And there is, I'm not going to lie, like a, there is like a thing about putting a book on the list. Like, I mean, it's, believe me, I was reading a lot more. There's very few books that go on the list these days, but it has like a pelt quality. You oh, know? you like, want I a want... book on the list to be like worth being one of the like, oh, not few e- books you're going to no, read no, before I do- you die. Yes, but I, like, I can't, it can't go on the list if I didn't finish it. So, like, it has to have been read to completion. So there is, like, just even, like, a acquisitiveness to it. Yeah. I'm so I, impressed you've kept the same notebook since college. I can barely hold on to one notebook until it's filled up. <laughs> I keep a list of all the books I read by year, but I keep it in a Google Doc. It's a Google, have, actually a Google Sheet, and I have a different tab for every I have, year. like, transferred parts of it to, like, into a into an email. So it exists in... in uh, Printed in paper, yeah. Not in print. You're 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 fundamentally considering all the books you'll get to read before you die is like one of the the earliest for me ways of like truly confronting your mortality. It's like is nothing nothing? How can that be? And then (laughs) that's like your five year old version, and you're like, I'm never going to read any more books. Yeah, no, it's 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 very accessible, especially when you when you imagine how many more tabs will be on your Google Sheet, and whether there'll even be Google Sheets. I'll probably just keep it in my mind cloud in a couple of years, but um. But yeah, that sense of scarcity of opportunity to read is one animating thing. A critic I know who I will not name to protect him or her told me once that um, they have a firm policy of never reading any of their friends' books. Like if you are a journalist in New York City, you probably have like 10 friends come out with a book in any given year, five to 10. And he's like, if you read, oops, or she, (laughs) it's like if you read all of those books, that would be all you read for the rest of your life. And what are the odds that your friends are going to write like (laughs) the best books that you should read? Like they they may be very smart. They may write very good books, but just never read any of your friends' books, which I thought was like an amazingly ruthless approach to this question. Not one that I share, but uh, one that I thought was thought provoking. I'm at a moment where I'm painfully aware of the few number of books I will read before I die and the fact that I'm like extremely lightly read among the Russians and really need to get to Anna Karenina at some point. And Do never it. Have. I will. I will. Someday. I read that recently because I also was um, feeling bummed out about it and it was so dope. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not That's like, my blur for Anna Karenina. I'm not a, so dope. I'm not like concerned or afraid of it or any or anything. I'm just like I'm just saving it. Hopefully, I won't. I won't uh, get hit by a bus. Um, but I am at this moment, as our listeners know, where I need to read fiction with plot at bedtime. Like really goes down easy fiction with plot. Like I need my mind to be taken away from all of my cares, and so I'm reading like a bunch of kind of high caliber mysteries in the ton of French mold, or I guess I'm reading a bunch of 80s dish at the moment. Before that, I read the new Philip Pullman book, you know, like sort of plotty YA. Like, 
I'm not necessarily um, lining my trophy cabinet with the the finest that modern or ancient literature has produced. At the risk of going on too long on the subject, I would say that because I watch TV, that's exactly the itch I don't need scratched. I feel like all I have is plot, and I don't like need the book version of a TV show. And on the other hand, there was a moment like when I my kid was brand new, and I was like, I really just wanted plot because I like, could barely pay attention. It was like the middle of the night, and there was like. I so had always been interested in it because I like really like love stories and people were claiming there was like actually good romance novels and I was like are there good romance novels I'll find out I'm gonna find out and I read a couple of them and you know like they really are just like chick lit with sex they really did the trick I'm not if that's like a, if you're into like just plot that's like pretty fine and like has a romance in it I, I recommend I've been sticking straight to the mystery side of the aisle yeah I'm never into I get too scared can I just weigh in and say I mean I, I so identify with only wanting to read fiction because that's what reading always was to me but right now maybe because I'm writing a nonfiction book I'm in this moment where I just can't engage with fiction also I guess I engage with lots of fiction with the you know movies that I write <laughs> yeah. about and stuff that we watch for this show and uh, and there's just so much I want to learn right now I feel very much more connected to nonfiction right now and I have about three books going and they're all nonfiction well sharp the one I just started yeah. is one of them so I'm really interested in essays and history and film history obviously like basically the stuff that I need to read for my research is is what I really want to read Ugh, I'm jealous of that there's so many nonfiction books that I'm like excited about the project or the idea that I mean any book that you read like that is like getting to take a little course like that's but so I, exciting I just can't I, like my my brain cannot do that at the it, during the like twenty five minutes every day I can read I can do like essays and I can do like like I just can't do like a tome like a nonfiction tome and I actually feel like that's what the New Yorker for which I'm also miserably behind on but I'm just like if I want to like learn a bunch of stuff about something that's interesting like someone it like curated a bunch of things I should know. You know, yeah. All right. Well, nope. None of us finish any books <laughs> unless we damn well want to, and we have no shame about it. We didn't even get to whether we care whether other people say we must read it. That would only more... make me more likely to totally not. Finish it. <laughs> it's the same. It country. depends on the friends. I don't know. I have a couple of friends whose literary opinions I really trust. Like if they got a glazed whirlpool look in their eye and were shoving. I mean, this is what happened with Elena Ferrante. Essentially, I was in that mode of not being that into reading fiction, and it was because people from all different walks of life. From I don't even remember who they all were but like from my mom to you know some of my most literary friends were all raving about it and there I mean it's not a it's not work to finish those books because they're ridiculously addictive but I think that the 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 persuasion aspect did bear on my reading well there's reading something because people tell you it's good and then there's reading something because you want to be able to talk about it with everybody while they're talking about it and those are two different motivations and I would say the second one is much more likely to be persuasive to me you know, I have a few friends. Like, I will follow Jody Rosen off of any right, literary exactly. cliff. Like, anything he posts on Facebook that he's like, I'm obsessed with this book. I'm like, yoink, I will buy that book and read it. And actually that, the recent Richard Lloyd Perry book, Ghost of the Tsunami, which I read and became aware of having fallen in love with his first book after Jody recommended it probably on this show, is like a nonfiction, a beautiful nonfiction treatise that I recently read. And actually Barbarian Days, the great surfing book by Felton again. Did you read that yet? No. Did you read that yet? I just read the ex- I just read the excerpt. I have not read it. That is the one book that I will tell you and you can ignore. You've got to read that book. It's like the most profound. So more so than H for Hawk, which you also passionately endorsed? Uh, yeah, by far. I, I, I think it's like the best book I've read in 20 years. Like I, I, Good I Lord. I think it's just an incredibly beautiful, understated significant book about what it means to be alive. 
Look at me writing the title right here. <laughs> God, I can't wait for you guys to go not read that book. Okay, this has been a long and languorous discussion <laughs> of books and how we feel about reading them. Uh, thank you very much, Slate Plus listeners, for prompting this. Thanks to Sammy Martin for asking the question. Uh, please come to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, and tell us whether you finish what you start or not, because life is too short. We'll talk to you next week. All right, our next Slate Plus segment is from the Oopsie Jar edition that we recorded this past September. This is Steve and I talking to Sam Anderson of the New York Times Magazine and the author of the great new book, Boomtown. During the show itself, we talked to him about Boomtown. For the Slate Plus segment, we went a little bit deeper. Sam Anderson was the one, actually, who wanted Steve and I to talk about the process of writing a book, what that has been like for us as we slog through and uh, and what it's like to be the person who just finished it. And it really became quite a, a exchanging of confidences. It was one of my favorite segments the year. So here you go. Hello, welcome to the Slot Plus segment of our show, the part for those of you who very kindly have subscribed to Slate Plus to support the podcast. So this week, we have Sam Anderson as our guest. And because he just finished his first book, and Stephen and I are somewhere in the flailing midst of writing our first books, uh, we thought we would talk about that and, um, and essentially just commiserate and share tales of the experience. So uh, I don't know. I don't want to be the one to start because I'm Let's hosting. So somebody else has together. to do it. <laughs> yes, simultaneous, like ohm, like ohm, but a, but a whining sound. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, the quote that springs to mind, and I, I don't have this exactly, but there's a great Emerson quote that gave me some comfort over the years, which is, which is about um, his amazement that things happen at all. It, it certainly did not happen on any day of the calendar. Like some magic day must have been interpolated somewhere for this stuff to actually happen. And that's kind of how I feel about my book when the truth is actually so much the opposite of it is just these, it's just the sponge of days and months and years and hours. So it was about six years attention. total, right? Yeah. Yeah. Six years almost six years from when I was first sent out there to do the article, five years of really working on the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's so many, I mean, there's so many points along the road where I, I just remember my editor, my first editor, because he eventually left to get a new job as normal people do in the course of their lives. And this was just taking so long, but I remember him saying, <laughs> babies so, were born, trees grew. Yeah, and died. exactly. I remember, uh, it was maybe 2015 where he said, I just cannot push this deadline back again because the original deadline was April uh, 1st, 2014. I was supposed to write it in a year. And somewhere in 2015, he said, no more. We just can't push it back. It's simply not possible. And then here we are in 2018. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. As someone who is still trying to make my contractual deadline of January 4th of next year, which seems cartoonishly impossible, I mean, I'm maybe like a fourth of the way through, what, how, what do you do? Did they say they were going to make you give your advance back? And no, then you... we never got to that point. I mean, one of one of the shameful little secrets in the book industry is that everyone is late to some degree. And um, as long as you're making progress and, you know, and showing pieces that are promising, I think you, you get some leeway, you know, it all comes down to like any editor-writer relationship. Right. Did you show a lot of stuff as you were going? Was that your, your <clears throat> practice with your editors? Yeah, I, I dump huge messes on the desk occasionally, and um, they read it and are like, wow, this is a brilliant five-page passage. Um, where's all the stuff about XYZ? And 
And uh, in the end, they just kind of shrug and wait, I think. Right. Nobody gives you real detailed notes until you give them a whole manuscript. Really. Yeah. I mean, actually, that's not true. When uh, there was a, a new editor took it over at a, and, and we were at kind of an inflection point and he took a lot of the stuff. My editor, Kevin Doughton, who's a really brilliant guy at Crown, and took a lot of the material and really talked it through with me. And, and we talked about proportions and sort of narrative pace and how to cut up these little bits. So he did get deep in the trenches and work with me. And then and then it was a much more collaborative process to get it to the end. But I mean, ugh, I'm exhausted mm-hmm. thinking back about it and talking about it. Like just you saying you're a quarter of the way done. I remember the agony of trying to come up with those kinds of fractions. Because right. people would ask you all the time, like, how much are you done? Right. I mean, mm. my wife would ask me, well, how much? And you'd be like, I don't 50%? I don't know. And you're <laughs> just completely making up numbers. Right. Well, not to mention if I extrapolated the number of pages I have now, and this was actually 25%, I would have like a 660-page yeah. book, which There's nobody wants to read. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point... I told this to my therapist uh, in one particularly fraught session. I was like, the image I keep having, this must have been in 2016, maybe 2017, is of a ball of yarn that is the size of an entire room. And it takes out, it's just like squished into the room. And the yarn is all, it's one ball of yarn, but it's, all different colors like the different segments of that piece of yarn are different colors and I have to somehow get in there and snip and find the colors that match up and like line them all up on the floor when I can barely even get into the room physically because it's so big it takes up the whole room and also it's a quantum ball of yarn so that the colors are like changing and shifting and like when you cut one it changes color Hmm. that was that that to me still rings the truest as a metaphor for what it felt like to be deep into the process of this book and trying to make it all work. Uh, And it felt so hopeless. I felt so defeated. And really the only way through is you squish yourself in the room and you start snipping little bits of the yarn and you can do, you know, 10 snips a day or something. And then it takes all the days that it takes to snip it all apart and line it all up and figure it out. It really does. All right. So a couple, I'm going to ask you some stuff too, Steve, but I have a couple of process questions for you with this yarn metaphor. So did you do a lot of working with physical objects? Like when we talked about that John McPhee book, Mm -hmm. I think you came in that week, right? Didn't we talk about the John McPhee book with you? Yeah. How to write nonfiction. Yeah. And I was saying that it could never help any person in the world who was not as brilliant and weird as John McPhee. I think I must have said, I asked Mark Singer, his great friend, do you write like this, Mark? And he said, fuck no. (laughs) (laughs) Oopsie jar. There's the oopsie jar. (laughs) I mean, we won't even get into the insanity of his process but like as far as your, the materiality of yours did you print stuff out a lot did you yeah. did you lay things out on the floor and like cross out paragraphs with a pen and move things around that I want to do some kind of process um now that it is over and I can hold the thing in my hands I want to go back and do because I have a stack in my office as tall as taller than my children probably um of printed out and painstakingly marked up revised pages because that's how I do it because that's how I've always done it is I write largely by hand I get something into my computer and then I print it out and it could be like five sentences and then I just do like marginalia and crossing out and just this this like revision kind of blooms and that's where the writing happens to me like a lot of the creativity and then I type all that back in and then I print it out again and then I revise it so again. you were printing a lot like yeah. every day or so you oh, yeah. weren't okay yeah yeah mm. Yeah, so I have this huge stack of paper that I want to kind of sift through because you can trace the evolution of an idea into, 
you know, the, the passage passages we read earlier, I could probably find the first seeds of those and find where I came up with particular images and ideas like in the margins of what I had printed out. Do you think you'll keep that huge stack of paper? I don't know. I was going to I was, I was going to try to document. I'd love to talk to I would love to talk to younger writers about revision and writing and all that stuff, because that's to me where the magic happens. I love to revise. I hate to write and I love to revise, especially having mm. written about marginalia as you have. I would love to hear you like write or, or, or comment further on that process. OK, Steve, I'm switching over to you. So okay. I'm going to ask you that I would be interested to hear this from both of you, but I'll ask it of you. Who do you show stuff as you're you're writing it? I mean, you seem you strike me as a person who's very private about what you're writing and you probably don't show it to your wife or your editor or anybody else until it's ready. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, so uh, here's my agonized metaphor for r- writing my book, um, get, getting to the end of the first draft, which is imagine you're, um, you know, you're painting the hull of a battleship and it's your job to paint the whole thing. And you're just right up close to the vast hulking object. And you're taking, you're just stroke, stroke, stroke every day, applying the paint. And, but you know, you're going to be done and you're finally done and you, and you stand back and look at your handiwork and it's, it's just perfect. You did it. You covered the hull in paint. And then someone says, Oh, it's the wrong color. (laughs) And, um, you know, part of the problem with me was that is I've been writing forever and the bulk of the writing happened during the Obama years. And I was writing a declinist narrative in which I said, you know, everything about this country is rotted away to crap. And, and I, I pinpoint what I believe to be a real turning point, not a fake one, not a adventitious one for the purpose of making a cutesy argument, but a real turning point with substant substantive reason for it being the turning point. And then build an argument around that. But no one was feeling the decline in the Obama years. And I I guess what I, I guess at the cost of writing a prophetic book that people might now look back on and publishing a prophetic book that people might look back on now and say, holy shit, he like called it. Now I'm going to write a valedictory or whatever uh, book um, now that everyone knows and sees that, that, that you know, the essential structures of sanity um, inner and outer structures uh, of of public sanity have have been destroyed or in the process they rotted away but now are being kicked away um, and left for dead. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a it's a book that has a. I have more faith in the argument now than maybe when I was making it, um, and I'm more comfortable with elegy than I am with prophecy. So that's kind of where I am. Steve, we just want to know what fraction of the boat you've managed to repaint by now. <laughs> well, what I was thinking what you were going to say, <laughs> when you were talking about painting the boat, all I could think of was, I, I imagine finishing painting the boat and then it's already started rusting on the other side of the hole because yeah. it took you so long to paint it. You know, oh, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Because there's, Thanks, this, there's this moment I'm in right now. Well, okay, like, here's, here's you guys can talk me through this. I'm not in, talking to my therapist right now because I can't afford it, either the time or the money while I write this book. So you guys can can serve as it. So for one thing, how do you motivate when you really are in that Dante-esque moment of like, I'm in the middle of a dark woods and I don't see any way out of this? Did you did you take breaks? Did you do motivational kind of uh, work on yourself? Would you? I don't know. I mean, both in a day to day way, like, do you go walk the dog or whatever? And Mm -hmm. also in a a bigger sort of conceptual way, how do you? How do you, you know, restart a project when you feel like it's really stalled right now and I don't know why I did it in the first place? Oh, it's mm. so hard. I mean, that's that's the answer to that question. It's so hard. You you just have to. I And I think there is 
therapeutic value in just hearing people who have done it and other people because we we concoct these fantasies of the other people around us who we think of as successful and skipping along and producing stuff. It's just such a punishing, boring, unrewarding slog to mm. make yourself sit down and get into it. And there's some point where you're you just have to point the little tool of your focus at the thing and then wait for it to like catch in the proper gear. And then suddenly you're pulled, then you're in the machine and you're working. Mm -hmm. But to have that faith where you take that little tool of your focus and attention and, and point it at the thing and like hold it against the right. thing. Well, the problem is then you have to look at the thing. Like I think it was Mary, yeah. Mary Carr, the great writer and poet Mary Carr, who said something about starting a book. I mean, I feel like this about every stage of writing it, but she said starting a book is like being trapped in a room with the, the stupidest version of yourself, right? I mean, yeah. you, you have to actually yeah. kind of confront your yeah. own limitations yeah. for I hours spent, and on yeah. end. I spent so much time and I still do like I'm struggling to finish a draft of a magazine piece right now. And what I'm trying to get better at, I'm now 41 years old and I've been struggling this with this since I was 20 years old, um, is being terrified of the writing. It's just I stay away because I'm terrified of it, of yeah. coming in back into contact with that project. And of course, that's the last thing that will get it done. And the last thing you can really afford to do is be terrified of it. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't know how, I, I don't know, like, and that's why it's such a slog because I think of it as like this, you need this like little external figure to have like a crowbar to force you back, you know, but we don't have that little external figure. So I don't know, I don't know how to do that. You have to be your own little, little person with a crowbar and you have to be yourself and you, it's just, it's so hard every day. <laughs> do you think you'll ever do it again? I mean, at, at this point, you've, it's kind of like right after you give birth, right. you're not thinking about your next child. But can you imagine embarking on a book-sized project again? Yeah, because I would love to write a slim book. This book is 400 pages, and I think they use special skinny paper to trick people that it's shorter than it is. But um, I think certain ideas can really only be served by a book. Uh, and I want to be back in that world with like my heroes, like Annie Dillard and John McPhee, who are producing these books and Mary McCarthy or whatever. You know, you want to you want to exist in that world. And the only way to do it is to write books. Magazine pieces get shorter and shorter every year. Um, so absolutely. When the idea sweeps me away, I'll, I will absolutely do it and I will embark on the exact same struggle. <laughs> what about you, Steve? When this is done, will you ever do it again? Ah, uh, Yeah. I will. Steve, do you believe there were there were so many times um, and in here I'm paraphrasing another therapy session, but there were so many times where I was just like, I do not believe deep in my soul that this book will ever be done. I just didn't believe that it would be mm -hmm. done. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. All the time. Yeah. Still. How are you doing now? Do you think do you believe your book will be done? I do believe it because I've taken chunks of it and I'm starting to publish them in, in magazines and they're receptive and readers have responded to the pieces and that, that I kind of needed that to happen. I so. mean, yeah. 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 Oh, that's a stealth revelation. I didn't realize the stuff you've been publishing recently was from the book. I didn't either. Some of it. Yeah. One thing for the Atlantic, one thing for the New Yorker, a forthcoming thing for the New Yorker. And so, that's, that's the thing is like Stephen Metcalf is a crazily brilliant person, right? And we all know that out in the world, but <laughs> Stephen Metcalf in his room by himself trying to work on this and lashing himself for, for taking so long with it does not recognize that he's a brilliant person and probably quite the opposite. 
Right. Oh, no. Yeah, this, well, I mean, have you have you or have you not had the fantasy like, what if I suddenly die in an accident and then everybody looks at it and like this was all it is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my <laughs> totally. totally. And my wife, my wife, who was not allowed to read the book until she actually read it in hardcover form um, when it officially came out. She said she confessed after reading it and loved it. She confessed that she was terrified that what if this is a bad book? What do I say? (laughs) The rest of the marriage is going to be awkward. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, or like Jack Torrance. I mean, you know. Well, I I was in Barnes & Noble once um, browsing through things, and there was a preface to a book by Karl Popper uh, where I stumbled upon Um, this statement, which I took some comfort from in my last year or so of writing the book. So uh, Popper wrote, no book can ever be finished. While working on it, we learn just enough to find it immature the moment we turn away from it. (laughs) I found that comforting because there is this standard of sort of perfection that you have and you just have to realize like, Walk away, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walk away. <laughs> yeah, which means that it's also, I mean, it's it sound, this sounds so kind of hokey and affirmations, greeting card-like, but it really is, you're working with yourself, you know? I mean, you have to do some kind of work on your actual self to make yourself overcome that fear of opening a file that you haven't opened in a couple of days and totally. confronting what's in it. You know what? My therapist actually retired recently. And uh, maybe exhausted by your yes, exhausted. <laughs> book writing sessions. <laughs> I think she retired like right. Actually, she retired. I was going to say in celebration of me finishing my book. But no, she retired a little before I managed to. Um, and as a treat to myself, I have recently hired a writing slash productivity coach consultant um, who is, a you know, kind of quasi therapist. Um, and we've talked a lot about that. She says, you know, we think of this work as intellectual labor and it is, um, but it is at least as much or maybe even more emotional labor. And we don't often talk about the emotional labor that goes into doing this stuff. So Mm -hmm. I found even framing it in those terms was just, it felt like such a relief to me Mm -hmm. um, because you're doing all this unrecognized work that you think you probably shouldn't be doing you think that by by struggling with the emotional stuff you're messing up the process somehow Mm -hmm. but actually Mm -hmm. you're not you're doing the work and it's hard because it's hard the intellectual part is hard the emotional part is hard um but that's an absolutely valid part of the process that you just have to struggle with so so i'm a big fan of talking to people about all this stuff as much as possible insofar as people want to hear it so uh i'm glad that we could commiserate a little bit and Steve, I can't wait to read your book. When can I buy your book, buddy? I can't wait to read your book. I hated all that stuff all that people would say to me. All When's your it. book out? Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> when people say, I can't wait to read it, I always say, well, get good at waiting to read it. because oh, I would always say, me too. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my line. Yeah. Wait, as, yeah. as a final little tidbit, because I talked about it in the main segment, can I mention how the Oklahoma land run crosses over into oh, my book? And Buster actually, Keaton also does too. How so? He performed as a little kid in downtown Oklahoma City. Is that in your book somewhere? Um, No. It was, and then it fell out because he... I was talking about the particular beautiful theaters that were destroyed in this crazy urban renewal they did, and he didn't perform at one of those. But no, he was there with his parents oh, getting thrown surprising. around. that's <laughs> not I mean, he, 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 we toured the whole country, yeah. so I guess that'd be one of the places he ended up. Yeah. No, I guess, but the, the way that the Oklahoma Land Run comes into mind, and so I may end up quoting your book or at least you know using mm. it to, to think about it, is that his father, Joe Keaton, one of the three Keatons in that act, vaudeville act, traveling the country, 
supposedly, at least according to his very self-mythologizing way of talking about his own life, was one of the Sooners, was one of the guys, you know, waiting outside to to stake a claim in the land run and oh, got right. and got some land for his family. That's right. But there's no record that this this actually happened or this land existed. Then again, as you know, record keeping yeah. was pretty much of a shambles That's at funny, that yeah. point. But that was definitely a big part of Joe Keaton's self-mythologization and therefore part of Buster Keaton's mythologization yep. of his father. And, uh, you know, he, he rarely mm. told a story about his dad without mentioning that he was one of the Sooners. They were called the Sooners, I'm correct, right? The Sooners were the ones who cheated and came in early. The Boomers were the ones uh, okay. who, yeah. I don't know. Knowing Joe Keaton, he probably broke every rule he Sooner. possibly yeah. could. Oh, that would be a good Buster Keaton film, right? The Land Run? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Imagine I... the hijinks he would get up to. Oh, yeah. That's a perfect scenario for him. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, you're a genius. You're a beautiful writer. I'm not joking right now, Steve. Um, you're a beautiful writer. I cannot wait to read your book. You are going to get it done, and I'm so excited to read it and talk about it with you and savor uh, all of your beautiful clauses and phrases. Mm. Well, you know, my my low self-esteem eats compliments like Pac-Man, you know? Just boop, 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 boop. But I appreciate that, too. There are not enough compliments in the writing world. Dana, also... I cannot yeah. wait oh, to read oh, your book. Thanks for the chopped liver. No, tag. no, no. This is not chopped liver. Dana, I cannot wait to read you in a focused, extended look at a subject as rich and amazing as Buster Keaton. I can't think of anyone else I would rather read an entire book about oh. Buster Keaton by. So I'm so pumped. I have a little less worry for you than I do for Steve because I know he's been struggling longer right now. Um, so if that came across as as less exuberant toward you, that's the only reason why. <laughs> <laughs> so you were blowing smoke. Okay. No, I just want to make sure Steve is okay though. And and my my enthusiasm will ratchet up as soon as we take care of Steve and get him done, then we'll then then we'll turn our attention to you. My worry about Steve, honestly, let, let me just extend this by one more second yeah. for a touchy feely observation. My worry about Steve is that he doesn't show anything to anyone. Like I feel like the only thing that gets me through sometimes is I don't show much to my editor unless it's fairly polished. Uh-huh. Um, but once in a while, I let my partner read something that's in a le- in a less you know it's in a parboiled state, let's mm-hmm. say. And uh, and then I have one friend, one special writer friend who I trust neurotically to look at stuff that isn't quite done. And all I really want to hear back from those people is keep going. Yeah, you know, I, I would like to hear one compliment, one specific compliment, yep. like this line made me laugh, or like this line made me think something, or this is a well chosen adjective, and then keep going. Yep. And uh, and if I didn't have those little blips from the outside world, I think I really would be in like Jack Torrance madness land. So I I encourage Steve to find that person. Because I, I think it's it's really helpful. Be careful, Dana. It's going to be you. Um, <laughs> I would be honored. All right. Well, that was really cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Thanks, Sam. Um, and, and it means a lot that you are looking forward to our books. I'm sure Steve would say the same. Absolutely. All right. And thanks to all of you for subscribing to Slate Plus and helping to support our show. And we'll talk to you next week. And for our last Slot Plus segment for this special roundup, we're going all the way back to December of 2015. This is actually one of our kind of all-time favorite segments for a lot of us, I think. It's Steve and Julia and I talking about being reunited with our favorite childhood objects. And in Julia's case, the conversation comes around to her oft-discussed favorite children's book, Need a House? Call Ms. Mouse. Hello, and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you are hearing this now, that means you're a Slate Plus member. 
Thank you so much for supporting this extra segment of our show and all of the work that Slate does. Today, we have a callback edition of the Slate Culture Gap Fest. A few years ago, at our annual retreat at Mohonk, we did a call-in show where we talked about the cultural encounter from our childhood that was deeply moving and important. And I started talking about this book that I that it kind of only occurred to me, I think, in stream in the moment, and then <laughs> began to describe the book. And you guys started cracking up because it seemed almost as comical as Dana's nutmeg excursion. <laughs> and I started talking about this fictional mouse architect that I loved as a kid. And you guys began to doubt that the book existed. And I talked about how it was very hard to find on the internet. And, and anyway, over the holiday, it was my birthday, and my husband found a rare copy of Need a House? Question mark. Call Ms. Mouse! Exclamation point by George Mendoza, illustrated by Doris Susan Smith. Uh, and so I now have been reunited with my favorite childhood book for the first time in 20 or 30 years and uh, was able to read it to my children a few times over the weekend. And What a sweet present. Did you cry again when you opened it? I definitely did. I was so moved and touched and so excited. Um, and the book is as wonderful as I remembered with one exception – which is that I, Henrietta is a decorator. She's not an architect, apparently. Now, that may not be correct because the book is originally Australian and went by the title House by Mouse there. And I once republished on Slate a wonderful essay by an Australian architecture critic called Naomi Stead, who claims that the book was completely rewritten for an American audience and made much worse. And House by Mouse sort of suggests architecture. Also, in the cover image, Henrietta, our, our mouse heroine, is like drafting with a protractor on an architect's table with blueprints all around her. Uh, I believe her to be an architect. And also, if you look at the illustrations in the book, you'll see that what's interesting about her creations is the architecture, really. The decor is kind of all 70s, whatnot. But in any event, uh, I'm so overjoyed to prove to you guys that this book exists. So here, Dana... Hold Henrietta's uh, masterpieces in your wonderful little hands and see what you think. Oh, yeah. These illustrations are fantastic. But was the architecture critic claiming that the the book was softened for American audiences because we couldn't take the idea of a female mouse decorator? I mean, architect? That she had to be a decorator instead? I don't know. I need to get a copy of the Australian book, clearly. Now I can't be satisfied with just one. Um, <laughs> but she um, she notes that a couple of the characters get more gender normative identities like a bear has turned from a I don't even know how this is true but like there's a there's a greedy piggy mansion page and the pig is turned into a acquisitive woman as opposed to a man which apparently the pig was a man in the in the Australian version. Oh yeah, there's some there's some capitalism critique in here. Pig is so fussy you would think she is the queen of England. See what piggy money can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with a big cutaway illustration of it's the pigs, sort of like a home. yes. This is the the McMansion, the sneered at McMansion page. Most of the other homes here are aspirational, but this is the one that you're supposed to think is uncool. Ah, you've arrived at the Otter's home. The Otter's home is one of my favorites. She's clearly a builder here. Otter tells Henrietta, that's the mouse, please build me a sturdy hunting and fishing lodge. Yeah, that's not what you say to the decorator. And Her- Henrietta cares only for the simple life. She herself lives in a in a tent. Next to a bunch of fairy mushrooms roasting some hot dogs. <laughs> so, so okay. Now you, now we've proved I'm not crazy. I mean, I think the broader thing here is what is it like to encounter a thing that you've lost for I don't know three decades or whatever it is. And for me, it's just deeply pleasurable. And the book is 
as wonderful as I remember it, despite the slight of refusing to call Henrietta an architect, which she obviously is. Um, and it's been really fun. My kids are really into it already. This morning they were mad that I was taking it to work for the day. They were like, why? What you do with it at work? <laughs> and I was like, I'll bring it home, I promise. And they've been calling it Henrietta. So she's, she's very prominent in their minds. Um, but I, have you guys ever had this experience of like reconnecting with something, a lost object? Or is there a lost object with which you would like to reconnect? Mm, I, I can say yes to both, um, Dana, if you don't mind le- me leaping yeah, in. Ahead. But the yeah, the first would be, I, and I've endorsed this before on the show and probably will again in the coming weeks, is that when I was v- very young, I mean, you know, second, third, fourth grade, there was a, um, an animated version of The Christmas Carol on TV that it played maybe once or twice. I mean, I'm maybe two consecutive years I saw it, you know, 1974, 1975. And I remember it being haunting, weird, really cool. And uh, YouTube was, uh, you know, was what allowed me to find it as a grown-up, like five, six years ago, maybe. And it turns out it is amazing. It's 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 um, directed by Chuck Jones in 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 concert with a uh, sort of well-known, I think, English animator. I can't remember. I'll have to find his name. But uh, it turns out it was as wonderful as I remember it. That was a great experience. But then the other thing, and this is this is thrown out to all of our plus listeners. I am sure the first book that I ever totally bonded with was in first grade in school. We read a book about some creature that walks backwards. So, <laughs> and it, so it was like, do crabs go backwards? I can't remember. Lobsters? I believe crabs go sideways. No famed <laughs> okay. for going sideways. Rule out Does the anything crabs. go backwards? <laughs> <laughs> There's, um, Nautiluses do. They swim backwards. Really? <laughs> what because the name of the- Because the name of But the- <laughs> If you sprinkle nutmeg on a Nautilus. <laughs> the Dana the, Stevens story. <laughs> because the the whole point of it was, or not the point of it, but the but the creature's name was the word spelled that it was, the, the name of its creature name spelled backwards. So maybe, let's see if it was Nautilus spelled backwards would be... So you're still trying to find this thing, Steve. You yes, still have not refound it. Our list, you it. Still throw it out to the listeners. Somebody's going to find it for you. Creature that moves backwards. His name is also spelled backwards. <laughs> All right, Dana. What lost? What's your rosebud? You know, I think I actually found mine and endorsed it once on on the Gabfest in the past. I remember doing this as an endorsement. It was this this movie for children by Saul Bass, who's mainly known as a title designer um, and, and, and poster illustrator for movies. He did all the great James Bond title sequences for many years. And he had this, this film for children called Why Men Create that I had a vague memory of seeing in, a, in an elementary school classroom. And I had no idea who made it, what it was called, how I would ever find it again. I just remembered a few images and lines from it. And decades later, probably two or three years ago, I came across it on brainpickings.org. She happened to have a post on Saul Bass for his birthday or something like that. And and, uh, and and had the entirety of Why Men Create linked to, to her site. And I believe I endorsed it here. It's really, really wonderful, particularly the very, very beginning, which is this animated imagination of history where essentially history is a vertical pile with the cavemen at the bottom and technology getting more and more elaborate as they all pile on top of each other up to the present day. Whoa. Yeah, I think I remember you talking about that. And Steve, I think you endorsed your Christmas Carol, too, because that rang a bell as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's I so did. great. I you guys are reminding me of a lost figment of video, which is, I think, one of the animated shorts on Sesame Street. There was one about a bunch of like firefighters going to and from a fire that was sort of MC Escherish and mesmeric and strange and I've I've actually YouTube googled it whatever you called it YouTubed it searched for it on YouTube I suppose a couple times and I've never found it so if anyone has Steve's animals walking backwards book 
or my lost Sesame Street video of Escherish firefighter montages, please also help us further connect with our lost childhood self. Okay. Uh, therapy session concluded. Thank you all for confirming that the book exists. Uh, please, if you have not, check out the excerpt we have on Slate of House by Mouse uh, with the wonderful criticism of Naomi Stead. And thank you so much for being Slate Plus members and listening to this segment of the Slate Culture Gabfest. We'll talk to you next week. And that's it for today's show. Again, if you liked what you heard today and you want to get bonus segments and ad-free podcasts going forward, consider signing up for Slate Plus. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing our show and all your other favorite Slate shows. So to support Slate and the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com, and our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.